Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Hampton Court Palace, there is a beautiful, though rather fictionalized painting of Henry VIII and his family dating from around 1545. The king is shown in Whitehall Palace with his now long-dead wife, Jane Seymour, his son Edward and his daughters Mary and Elizabeth. But flanking the family and strikingly framed by two archways are two other figures in the gardens. On the right, there is a man in a green doublet and red hose with closely cropped ginger hair and a monkey on his shoulder. And this can be identified as William Summer, the king's fool. On the left, an apparently bald woman dressed in a tight-fitting red and white cap, a red patterned gown and an unusual pleated kirtle, whose attention has been gripped by something in the distance, is probably Jane the Fool. Fool in turn to Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Princess Mary, and Henry VIII's sixth and actual wife in 1545, Catherine Parr. Their inclusion in this important royal dynastic portrait raises the question of the role that fools had to play at the Tudor court. Their centrality to court life seems similarly represented in the appearance of fools in letters and household and revels accounts, contemporary plays and literature. So why were they included in this picture? Why, in fact, were fools kept at court? And how were they treated? These are questions I've long considered. Back in 2011, I was part of a Welcome Trust and Arts Council-funded project called All the King's Fools, exploring this little-known facet of life at Henry VIII's court and the past treatment of and attitudes towards disability. As part of this project, in 2011, The Misfits, a theatre company of actors with learning disabilities, directed by former European Jester of the Year Pete Cooper, performed at Hampton Court Palace and put the theory into practice. All of which to say, I'm really interested in fools. And there has been some really good work since, whether it's Philippa Vincent Connolly's book on disability and the Tudors, or Ali Sherrick's novel for children, The Queen's Fool. But I'm always on the lookout for more. So I was delighted to hear that a biography of Henry VIII's fool, Will Summer, was to be published, and rushed to get myself a copy. The book is called Fool, In Search of Henry VIII's Closest Man, and its author is Dr. Peter K. Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a senior lecturer in history at Åbro University in Sweden, and he's previously written about street life in late Victorian London. And he is my guest today. Dr. Anderson, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to be talking about your new book, and the title of the book is perhaps where we should start. It is called Fool, In Search of Henry VIII's Closest Man. We're talking about William Summer. 
briefly, could you give us a starter for 10 on who William Summer was and why you think, in the words of your subtitle, that he was Henry VIII's closest man? Yes, he was close to the king physically throughout much of his reign, but he was probably not very close to him in other senses, in terms of social standing or social interaction or way of life entirely. He seems to have been a completely different figure because William Summer was Henry VIII's fool. He was the king's fool, and he was probably one of the most famous fools of the Renaissance, at least in England. And he became a legendary fool, especially in posterity. And so he is a very good person to focus on if you want to write about the terms and the living conditions of court fools generally in this period. Laura Cumming wrote a book about Velasquez, which is subtitled In Search Of as well. Why is it necessary or difficult, or both, when it comes to summer, to search for him? I think it's suitable for certain historical figures, because some people in the past are very elusive, and there is a lack of documentation. And this goes for William Summer, and it goes for all fools of the early modern period, I think. There is a certain type of documentation. There are often portraits of them. You can find them in special types of records, like wardrobe accounts, what they wore and what clothes were ordered for them and so on. But there are virtually no sources that tell us what sort of lives they led, what they thought, what their perspective on things were, or even exactly how they worked. So in that way, writing about them becomes the search for them. It becomes a sort of detective work where you try to piece together an image through very dispersed fragments. And you can find a lot of fragments, but they are very scattered and very seldom do you find memoirs or letters or something that are in the hand of an actual fool of this period. Yes. And as you write in your book, there is a sense in which learning is antithetical to the nature of being a fool. So that comes with the territory. And I suppose at this stage, I know you complicate this distinction in your work, but I think at this stage, it might be useful to talk about the distinction between natural and artificial fools. Yeah, that's something that you always encounter when you read about the culture of fools in the Renaissance or the early modern period. And they talked about naturals, and they talked about artificial fools. And artificial fools were what we would today call comedians or comics, skilled funny men or women who sometimes even wrote themselves or were even learned or intellectual people, but who entertained with their humor and their wit. But the natural fools were probably more common, at least if you go further back to the 15th or 16th century. And the natural fools were called that because they were employed based on a learning disability or an intellectual disability. It was usually that. It could possibly be something else. Possibly they could become fools because they were just commoners or they just had a certain personality or a very sort of vulgar or rural character that made them stand out from people at court. And this was deemed amusing in a way. So that is the largest category of fools in the Renaissance, the natural fools. And of course, they're very difficult to study because they left, as I said, very little records behind. I think it's also very important to study them because they make up quite a large and important part of that period and that history. So that's what I've tried to do. Now, in your book, you proceed to spiral in on William Summer and you start 
with his posthumous legend, I suppose, his reputation, and particularly how he appears in his kind of theatrical heyday in the 20 years around the turn of the 17th century. This is so important because it clears the way to see more precisely to the real man as far as we possibly can. So can we start there? Why do you think he was so popular in performances at that period of 1590 to 1610? It's very logical to start a book about Will Summer in that period because things from that period is what you first encounter when you start to read about him and study him. And there are a lot of writings about him from that period. There's even a sort of biography about him, which is very mythological and not very truthful. And he crops up as a character, especially in plays from that period. Shakespeare does not include him in his play about Henry VIII, but he has the prologue in the beginning say to the audience, you will not see this fool that you're expecting to see in a play about Henry VIII. So apparently the absence of Will Summer in a play about Henry VIII had to be explained away in some form or other. But in other plays, Samuel Rowley, Thomas Nash, and so on, he was very popular. And it was very popular to include him as a figure because he had grown into this sort of mythological, almost Robin Hood-like counterpart of the fool. And this was probably a very appropriate a character in this period For once, there was a sort of vogue for looking back at the time of Henry VIII when you wrote plays, and there were a lot of history plays about that period being staged. But this was also the time when the stage clown emerged, especially in the place of Shakespeare, of course, but also in other dramatists. And there were famous clowns, Richard Tarleton, Will Kemp, Robert Armin, who were a sort of transitional figure. They worked both at court and on the stage, And they were inspired, in a way, by the legends and the figures of earlier history and earlier comedians and fools. Robert Armin, especially, was quite influential because he wrote a book about fools called Fool Upon Fool, which is a sort of collective biography of a number of famous fools, some of whom had just passed away. And one of the fools in that book is Will Summer. So he writes a bit about him. And I think Robert Armin, who played a lot of Shakespeare's famous fool characters, Festy or Touchstone or King Lear's fool. He was inspired by that legendary figure of the court or the household fool of earlier generations when he shaped his stage persona. And so that is where we get the image of the clever, witty court fool that is mostly conjured up today. It is a mythologization. And when you go back to the period before that and to the period of Will Summers' own lifetime, that that's not really the truth about what fools did or how they were treated and what sort of people they were. They weren't really the sort of licensed, witty fools that they are in later Shakespeare drama, really. So what then do you think we can learn of the real man from these posthumous portrayals? You've parsed them in your book and weighed them up. What do you retain from them? Not much, I'm afraid, but it's still very interesting to look at them because you can see how quickly the character of Will Summer became fictionalised. Only a few decades after his death had he turned into a sort of fictional character in plays and pamphlets. But there are certain things when you find stories about him in books and drama from the late 16th, early 17th century, 
it's anecdotes that are attributed to him in one place. And then when you read the anecdote in another book, it's attributed to someone else. So that's where the sort of mythological aspect comes in. But there are certain things that crop up now and then in these stories. They don't really have any importance in the anecdotes. They are just mentioned in passing. Robert Armin mentions a few things that could lead you to think that maybe this is something that was true about the real man. The fact that he had a tendency to fall asleep in odd moments, that he was physically chastised now and then, as court fools were. Robert Armin even mentions in passing that when he'd been joking with the king, he lumbered into a corner to sleep with the spaniels, which is a very strange remark. And you might think, did he sleep in the dog basket in a corner of the room? It seems very strange, but it's quite thought-provoking. So when you find instances where, in terms of literary analysis, it feels out of keeping with the rest of the stock characterizations of fours, then it stands out. Or in instances where you found corroboration of some sources elsewhere, like the falling asleep, which yeah. will come to turns up in more primary sources, then you feel that you've got something you can hold on to. Yeah, exactly. At least it's a start. It's something that we can use as a foundation to build a more comprehensive picture of his personality. Now, one thing we probably ought to address is the keeping of fours at all. It may seem a fairly strange thing. Can we talk about why, in this period of time, nobility and royalty, not just in England, but all over Europe, kept fours? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. And of course, it's a fundamental question, but it's not that easy to provide a straight answer to it. We might think that the answer is quite simple, that they kept fools for entertainment, that fools were meant to be funny in the way that comedians are funny today. It's partly that, but I wouldn't say that was primarily the reason when we go back at least to the Renaissance period. Comedians and the sort of precursors of the modern comedians and clowns, that tends to develop mainly in the theatre and in the age of Shakespeare and so on. The court fool or the household fool had more of a sort of symbolic or ritualistic function, at least in the 16th century. They were meant to be like a sort of contrast to the majesty and dignity of the monarchs. Sometimes they could even be used as a sort of visual contrast when we come to talk about court dwarfs, who were like a related category of court employees, of course, in this time. Court dwarfs are often portrayed in portraits next to their employer or next to the monarchs to show this amusing visual contrast in size. But fools were there because they were different. They were meant to be different. They weren't only court fools or court dwarfs. They were court giants, court moors, as they were called then, people of a non-European background who were at court basically to be visually different from most other people at court. Some writers have called them human pets, and this is something that is quite interesting because sometimes when you look at the sources and so on, that they were treated almost like pets. They were beaten, they were treated roughly and so on. And they definitely did not have rooms in the palaces or something like that. They were probably very low down in the hierarchy of the court. So in a way, the sort of parallel of the human pet is suitable. But then, of course, there were other aspects to the treatment of them. They were also treated with sympathy and compassion and so on. 
I have an argument in my book that they could also be a sort of representative or a symbol of the commoners or the subjects of the king, the lowest of the low in a way, to show that these people were ever present in the business of the court. And they were always on the minds of the people working at court. Whether they actually were is another matter, of course. But in a way, they had a sort of symbolic function to represent the commoner in a way at court. So yeah, it was probably a lot of different reasons why people kept fools in this time. You've touched there on some of the contradictions in the way that foolishness and fools themselves were considered. And there's perhaps also a bit of a tension between how they're regarded in theory and how they're treated in practice. Can you talk a bit more about that and how we should understand them? Are they innocent or are they ignorant? That's probably one of the most important but also difficult aspects of the culture of fools in the Renaissance. And I think a lot of historians have based their image of fools in this period on writings, perhaps by philosophers like Erasmus or Thomas More and so on. And there you can find quite a sort of positive and praising attitude towards fools. Erasmus wrote an entire treatise called The Praise of Folly. But when you look at the practice and when you see traces of how fools were actually treated in reality, it's quite a contrast. You see them often quite brutally treated. There was a view that they needed to be disciplined in the same way as children were disciplined. And the Tudor period is certainly a period in which physical chastisement of children was a well-established practice. And servants, actually. So uh, corporal oh, right. discipline was used for servants as well right, as children. Right. Yeah. So that's quite a logical part of that. And when you look at theology and things like that, there was also a sort of contradictory attitude towards fools. According to some religious traditions, fools were the sort of most holy men. They were devoid of sin and so on. And then, according to other thoughts, they were the epitome of sin and they were equal to devils. So it was probably a very contradictory culture. There's a historian called Pamela Allen Brown who's written about court dwarfs, and she writes that the attitudes towards them showed wildly contrary impulses from parental care to sadism. Now that sort of sums it up nicely, I think. Well, it just seems that your work is looking at the surviving record about Will Summer, and a lot of that is drawn from material that thinks about provision for him. And only do we have anecdotally references that talk about being physically mistreated. Mm. But then we also get them about Thomas Cromwell, that Henry hits him around the head. So <laughs> I'm wondering if we see a differentiation in Will's treatment, or actually if he's being treated on a par as to many of those others at court at that time, and not singled out for mistreatment in the way that we see that in other European courts. Yeah, perhaps we see it more when we look at fools and think that's how they were treated as opposed to other people. But then if we look at other courtiers, perhaps we find the same sort of horseplay there. So that's yes, probably... horseplay for Henry, probably not so much for the person yeah, receiving yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that's basically how it is with bullies, isn't it? Quite. What I've seen, if I'm going to try to identify something, is that there was a contrast between the rough treatment and the good treatment of fools or dwarves depending on their own sort of personality and who they were. Of course, there was horseplay and there was 
manhandling and so on that could be directed towards fools or servants or courtiers and so on. But then there was also the sort of displays and performances that, at least to our eyes, were quite demeaning and violent. You might look at the court dwarfs at the Medici court in Florence. The Medici had two court dwarfs. One was called Morgante and one was Pietro Barbino. And they were quite different in the roles they played at the court. Morgante was probably more the type of natural fool who was employed to combat in mock combats. There's a source that he fought naked with monkeys in some sort of performance and so on. Whereas Pietro Barbino was more of a learned man who was employed as a court official and an administrator and had a completely different role, but was still a court dwarf. This is research not by me, but by art historian Sarah McBride that I'm quoting here. But that's an interesting case, I think, because it shows the sort of contrast in how they could be treated. Now, before Will Summer came to court, there were some other fours. What do we know about the previous fours at Henry VIII's court? The one we know the most about, or who is most famous, I think, is the one called Sexton, or sometimes Patch, who was a fool originally employed by Cardinal Wolsey. And he seems to have been a natural fool who was first at Cardinal Wolsey's household and was then taken to the court of the king. But when William Summer is employed, he seems to have grown a bit old. And there is also, at the time of Will Summer's arrival at court, there is a letter written by a court official. They've spotted a fool in a local abbey, I think it is that they think, oh, he's suitable to replace Sexton. If this concerns Will Summer or not is a debated issue. I'm not sure it does. But it shows that there was a sort of continuous recruitment of fools to the court. But before William Summer, we only have the occasional names, really, in court records. There wasn't a really famous fool like him before that. So what do we know of Summer's origins? That's also a very difficult thing because when we study fools or court fools you can find quite a lot of records of them connected to the court of course but then when you try to find them outside of court records it becomes more problematic and especially in William Summer's case because his name was not that uncommon you can find men called Summer or William Summer here and there really so it's difficult to find his origins. There are posthumous stories about him. Robert Armin, as I mentioned before, he mentions in passing that Will Summer originally came from Shropshire, but he doesn't say anything more about that. And then there is a more substantial story written in a book later in the 18th century that Will Summer was originally employed by a wealthy merchant called Richard Fermer, who lived in Northamptonshire and who was convicted of treason by Henry VIII. And then Will Summer was moved to court. Richard Fermer was eventually pardoned thanks to Will Summer's appeal on his behalf on the king's deathbed. So this is a very nice story. But if it's true, we don't know because there are not really any other records saying that Will Summer had a role to play in this. Richard Fermer and the fact that he was convicted of treason and then pardoned, this we know that the fool played any role in this. We only have one record to sustain that. But apart from this, we know nothing about his origins. We can speculate, of course. And as I mentioned before, there was this letter about a court official spotting a fool when he was traveling. So possibly there was a sort of informal talent scouting going on 
And whenever someone noticed a potential fool, they were quick to spot them and write back to court and say that maybe this is someone that we should employ. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And together we bring you Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. This month we're telling the stories of four phenomenal queens of England, like Athelflaed, who successfully captured Darby, Leicester and York from the Vikings. Or Emma of Normandy, who married two kings and was mother to two more kings. How about Anna Bohemia, who advocated for peace during the Hundred Years' War? Or Margaret of Anjou, who led Lancastrian forces at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Queens, you gotta love them. And we've picked out Four crackers to explore for you in September. Join us for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. One of the stories that comes up about Will Summer is from Shapui, who's the Imperial Ambassador in July 1535. And you talk in your book quite a lot about the meaning of this, and I want to come to that in a second. But I was lucky enough to recently be in Vienna looking at Shapui's letters. And so when I saw this in your book, it sent me down one of those rabbit holes we get into as historians. There's a translation of the original French in the calendar, and it's a bit of a paraphrase. And the first bit is translated as the king nearly murdered his own fool. And the text that it quotes in French says, a coup de tuer. And I was intrigued because coup de doesn't mean to try. <laughs> tuer does mean to kill, but it means to think or to suppose or to presume. Mm. So I went and tracked down the original manuscript <laughs> and I've sent it over to you, and it's a little scrap of paper that's yeah, yeah. tucked into the letter. And I spotted, I mean, it's a very difficult hand, but it looks like there were some transcription errors in the calendar. So it looks to me as if it says, Le roi d'Angleterre, oui de tuer. So he was heard to kill his fool. 
which is curious. So <laughs> assuming that Henry did not literally kill his form, people weren't hearing that off stage. Mm. It sounds to me, at least it suggests to me, a more metaphorical meaning that he was heard to maybe be beating his fall or to mm. be giving him a very round, sharp telling him off quite violently. Not mm. exactly that he nearly murdered him. No. What do you think of this? <laughs> it's fascinating that you managed to track down these original documents because I wasn't able to do it when I wrote the book in the midst of the pandemic. So I had some trouble locating some documents. And this is very important, of course. There are sources from this period that have been transcribed, perhaps in the 19th century and published. And then when you go back to the originals, that this is a mistake and the transcription is wrong and so on. So potentially there are numerous errors like this in sources from this period. Yeah, but this is something that I've mulled over a bit because, of course, we, it's not maybe surprising about Henry VIII, but still it stands out very much in all the rest of the references to fools in this time. There's no other account of a king assaulting or being that violent towards his own fool. Then again, it's written as a sort of secret note, isn't it? An addition to this letter. So why would he write it there and not in the original letter? But yeah, <laughs> this is, as you say, it's very much a rabbit hole. And probably there's more research to be done about this. Yes. And it totally makes sense that you could not have seen this during lockdown because this hasn't been digitized. I just happened to be lucky enough to go to the archives recently to see it. But it is interesting, isn't it, whether this could have some sort of metaphorical meaning or not. We shall leave that open for people to consider. We do have references to summer, however, in all sorts of revels accounts and also in accounts of provision for his clothing. What can we learn from these? They're quite different, these accounts. It ranges from, there are a few receipts that refer to him being washed and his feet being washed, things like that, the odd sort of paper that occur in the records. And that's also very thought-provoking. Around the time of Mary Tudor's coronation, I think, and you start to think, did they try to find the old fool somewhere in London and put him back to the court and had to wash him and so on? And then there are other references to him, as you say, in the revels accounts, which, of course, pertain to the revels and the festivities at court. The strange thing about those documents is that he is not that visible in them, really, and not what you might expect for a court fool. There is only one direct reference to him in the revels accounts, and that's when he is appearing in the Christmas festivities at the court of Edward VI, where he plays a vice, an attendant to the Lord of Misrule in the Christmas festivities. And he's being supplied with all these cardboard weapons and fake armor and so on that they used for these sort of mock combats that they had. It says that there are payments for a device by the king for a combat to be fought with William Summer. And that's, of course, a very intriguing reference there. Are we to take that he combated with the king, that there was a mock combat between William Summer and the king himself? Or was it just that the king had come up with this idea that Summer was to be engaged in the combat or something like that? And it suggests that maybe at this point, after the reign of Henry, they tried to find something for him to do in the festivities that was perhaps more suited to the tastes of the boy King Edward, who might not have appreciated as much as his father did the sort of subtle verbal humour that he might have performed in other contexts. So we have to find a new role for him here. And maybe that's why he was engaged in the Christmas festivities, because you can't find him in any other Christmas festivities, as far as I know. So he doesn't seem to have been that type of fool, that type of physical, jesting, riotous, carnivalesque fool, really. So if that makes him 
different from other fools or if that tells us something that the culture of the fool was more complicated, a bit open to debate, really. Yes, that's very interesting. It mm. does suggest that he's very much not a clown. Yes. And that's not yeah. the role that he's playing. Exactly, yeah. But it is striking, isn't it, how he is really present in some sources and then completely absent from others. I didn't realise no. until I read it in your book that he's not at all mentioned in Hall's Chronicle. So mm -hmm. this is a chronicle for those listening, which is written during Henry VIII's reign and gives us a detailed year-by-year account. I mean, it talks about kings before Henry VIII as well, but it particularly focuses on him. Yeah. And it's such a useful account. It's all about revels and performances and things, and yet it's yeah, yeah, yeah. summer. It's very interesting. And I'm sure I will get a lot of people writing in now to say that they found his name somewhere that I've missed. But of course, I've tried to look in all sorts of chronicles and things, and his absence is quite striking. So yeah, just as you say, he was no clown. He was not that kind of fool, really. And the sources that we do have of him and of what he said and did tell a different story, I think. Before we get on to those, can mm. we talk a bit about his clothing? Because we see the provision of clothing for him, and we'll go on to talk about his portrait in a second, where we see those same outfits being worn. He is given a lot of green, and he's given a lot of buttons. What's yes. going on there? <laughs> I really latched onto this and tried to come to terms with what this is about. And of course, there were a lot of buttons in Tudor clothing, especially in fine clothing and the dress of courtiers and so on. But it's strange to see buttons being ordered for him in very large quantities every time. And we don't know, but it's fun to speculate. Did he collect buttons? Did he have a certain interest there? Did he have a tendency to pull off his buttons or something like that. And there are other references to him that suggest he could get bouts of rage and so on. So maybe there is something there. And yeah, I have a long speculation about this in the book. And of course, you can never get a conclusive answer to this. But I think anytime you get a sort of small glimpse of a person behind the records, it's very interesting to go into that rabbit hole, to use your word, and see what can be teased out of that. And one thing we do have is a surprisingly large number of portraits of him, more, as you say, than many aristocrats or noblemen at the time. You also say, I love this line, the painted portrait says everything and nothing. It does feel that we could recognise his features, though. Can you describe him and talk a bit about what we can and can't conclude from these pictures? Yes, as you say, there are a lot of portraits of him. There are no portraits of him alone. He's always in the background of family portraits or dynastic portraits of the family of Henry VIII and so on. So he is included as a sort of background figure. But he's never the archetypal jester in cap and bells or something like that. He stands in the background, in the shadows, very brooding, very serious, looks a bit like some sort of court advisor or a clergyman or something. There are only very subtle signs of what role he played. And in the earliest portrait of him, he has a monkey on his shoulder. This is perhaps not that subtle a sign, but still, there is nothing else to suggest that he is a fool in that portrait. In a later portrait, he has a small lapdog under his arm, and the lapdog has a collar with bells on it, which might also very discreetly suggest the role of, of this man. But fools in Renaissance portraits were seldom outfitted like the stereotype of the court fool. That becomes more common later, I think, when it becomes a sort of convention in portraits. But in this period, it's not that clear that the court fools in portraits are fools. 
what he looked like, it's very clear that his hair was cut very shortly, which was common in fools. And he often wears green clothing. And some earlier historians have suggested that green was the color of the fool in this time. But it's quite difficult to say it really was like that, because you can find a lot of other figures in green, and you can find a lot of fools wearing red or whatever. So it's difficult to say that fools were connected to the color of green. This would suggest their natural state or something like that, perhaps, in the sense that Robin Hood was also the man in green and so on. So yeah, thanks to all these portraits, we have quite a clear image of what he looked like. And he is never, as I said, a sort of obvious funny man in these portraits. I'm also struck by the fact that whereas we have medieval French manuscripts, which might show falls in the motley colours and mm. the coxcomb and bells and that sort of thing. As you say, we don't have any of those, but we don't also have depictions of Henry VIII looking like a king. He, apart from his <laughs> gart around his leg, he also yeah. doesn't have the accoutrements of royalty. So no, clearly things point. are yeah. signaled in different ways at this time. Yeah. Yeah. Your earlier point is interesting. You said that there's a sense that dwarves are put in pictures to suggest difference. Do you mm. think that's what's going on with the portraits, that Summer is there? For example, in the Psalter, mm. the fool says in his heart, there's no God, and we have a picture of Will Summer turning away and then the mm. king playing his lyre like mm. King David. Do you think that he is there above all as a figure of contrast or should we read something else into it? I think so, but he also seems to be because he is invoked so often in these dynastic portraits. So in a sense, he seems also to have been employed as a sort of lucky charm or a mascot, because you can find him included in dynastic portraits up until the time of Queen Elizabeth, where he is included just in the margin of a painting. So it is just as if Will Summer came to symbolize the old Tudor court and the sort of continuity of the Tudor court all through the 16th century. So maybe he had that sort of role to play as well, or at least eventually he did. Now, as we zero in on him, you spot that the likely first glimpse of Will Summer occurs in a work by John Hayward. Mm. And here, the original text is really important. You point out how vital it is to use punctuation or not use it, depending on the original. Can you talk about this and what you learned from this? Oh, yes. John Hayward calls Will Summer a sot fool. And some people have put an exclamation mark between sot and fool. So that fool becomes a different word. But sot meant like a natural fool. So I think maybe when he calls him a sot fool, that is a suggestion that he considered him a natural fool. But there is also in the way that John Haywood talks about Summer, there is a sense that he was a bit jealous of him or that there was a dimension of competition in the relationship between them because he calls him of sots not the best, he has very low regards of him and his comedy. And he ends his drama with a sort of speech directed at the king to leave behind the taste for that type of foolery and be more sophisticated and support more the type of drama and verbal comedy that John Haywood represented. So that's the sort of underlying message in that text. It's a dialogue, witty and witless, that sort of constitutes a philosophical discussion about whether it's better to be witty or witless. And throughout this dialogue, the two characters debate the role of fools, not least. 
And there is a famous speech by one of the characters, which describes exactly this physical chastisement that fools were subjected to. It says, some beat him, some bob him, some joll him, some job him, some tug him by the arse, some lug him by the ears, some spit at him, some spurn him, some toss him, some turn him. The list goes on. But it ends then that not even the master, some of the king's own fool, can avoid this treatment. That's also a very interesting reference to him there, of course, that not even William Summer, who was the sort of pinnacle of fools in this period, could avoid the discipline. I'm also struck by the fact that the word sot could be used about someone who was drunk as well. So there's this sense of the silliness, perhaps, that they associate with drunkenness or foolishness being elided. And of course, the drunkenness was often a thing about fools, not particularly Will Summer that much, but in other fools, we find a lot of references to them being plied with alcohol or being very drunk. And that's the sort of basis for their entertainment in a way. One thing you mentioned earlier that comes up in the primary sources as well as the later records is that Summer has what looks like narcolepsy. He falls asleep a lot. And I was struck by the indications that people responded to this quite caringly. What do you make of this? Yeah, that's very interesting because you can find references to this in different sources. John Haywood mentions it, and then Robert Armin in his posthumous biography. And Armin includes a story about some falling asleep. I think he's falling asleep on a gate or a wall or something. And then a court servant comes and finds him and puts a pillow under his head, which is, of course, a very nice and endearing story. It puts him in the role of, again, human pet, the sort of like a cat or a, or an old dog lounging in the background, falling asleep in odd places and so on. He seems to have been from that perspective, at least, quite at home in the royal palaces, or made himself at home. If he slept with the Spaniels, as Robert Armin also says, of course, his status wasn't very good. But there is a sense of compassion in how he is regarded in many of the sources about him. Whether this was narcolepsy or whatever, of course, we cannot diagnose it today. But I know that Hilary Mantel, she mentions Will Summer occasionally in her novels about Thomas Cromwell. And she virtually diagnoses him with narcolepsy and says that he has to have a keeper with him when he goes out because he can fall asleep anywhere. It's not a completely unfounded speculation, and it certainly shows how much research was behind her writings, definitely. And it's certainly true that one thing we know about him is he did have a keeper and wasn't paid directly in the same Mm. way as Thomas the Jester was. So let's get to the number of it then. What do we know about his foolishness or his witticisms? What examples do we have? And (laughs) do you feel that his wit was intentional? I don't think his wit was intentional. That's the sort of core of my book, my sort of discussion about the sayings and utterances quoted by courtiers around him. And that's really the closest you can get to him in contemporary sources when various diplomats or courtiers and so on connected to the court refer to something he has said or done in a letter or a pamphlet or something like that. And these quotes can best be described as gaffes, really. It seems like he had a tendency to put his foot in his mouth and just say things that to people around him just sounded foolish and stupid. There is one quote about him speaking about a bishop, and he says, oh, that bishop, he has a good and base voice. And he made a base sermon. 
So the sort of compliment to his voice turns into an involuntary slander about his sermon. And that's a quote that you can find that he spoke ahead of himself a lot and was prone to commit these sorts of gaffes, really. There's another historian writing about fools have used the word involuntary bon mots about them. And maybe that's what uh, Summer was good at, uh, in inverted commas, saying things that could be imbued with meaning by others, that could be quoted and be funny, even though it was inadvertently funny. There's a reference to him later that says that Will Summer had a tongue that ran before him and his wit came halting after. And maybe that was the core of his appeal as a fool. And whether this makes him a natural fool or not is, of course, not that clear cut. There were a lot of people writing, referencing him in letters, saying that you should abide by nothing I say, Will Summer says. And this abide by nothing I say, this seems to have been a sort of motto connected to him. And maybe he, in a sense, knew that he was prone to say things that were interpreted in humorous ways. And so he started to say this, oh, don't mind me, don't abide by nothing I say. And this is his sort of version of the Groucho Marx, don't want to be a member of a club that would allow me as a member. It's, it's on a different level, but there is the same sense of that, the sort of consciousness of, of the fool's own foolishness. And so maybe he was present at court, or maybe he was a fool long enough to realize what it was that people found funny about him even though he was a sort of accidental comedian. <laughs> so I want to press on that a little bit, because it seems to me you're suggesting that it may not have been all accidental. And I'm interested in why you think it's accidental, I suppose, because two things occur to me. One is, as I was part of a project back in 2011 with a group of actors with learning disabilities playing the four at Hampton Court. And my experience of working with them was that they were very much present in the creation of their wit. So I have some concerns about whether we're robbing Will Summer of all his agency here. And also, this is a period in which wordplay is so crucial to the culture. We've got altering or adding words to mean something new is actually reminiscent of Henry VIII's interventions in books of theology, mm. or it's in the kind of culture around courtly love. I think it's what Anne Boleyn is so famous for, so admired by Henry VIII for. We see it in things like the Devonshire manuscript that circulates at her court. And I wonder actually if we don't have to choose between him being a natural fool and yet also conscious of the wit that he is deliberately employing. Yeah, I think that gets at the heart of it, really because maybe he was originally employed as a what was called a natural fool. But I think even to that period, the division between natural and artificial fool wasn't that clear cut. And it wasn't really very interesting for people to make a clear difference between them. And I think in some of the sources about him, the sort of unknowingness of whether he is a natural or artificial fool is part of the game. And maybe also that was a sort of closely guarded secret that only people who were very close to the king knew about. And that's probably what sort of fed this posthumous myth about him, which is always very inconclusive about whether he was a clever comedian or whether he was a natural fool. And I think perhaps if we manage to get beyond that division, we can also perhaps try to write disability history and things like that in a different and more nuanced way. We don't have to, writing about intellectually disabled people in the past doesn't have to be disability history, it can be just history. And that, I think that's one of the sort of purposes of this book.
between the lines. Thank you so much for your thoughts. You have spoken to us wonderfully about all of the evidence that you have used to try and resurrect this character. And it's been utterly fascinating. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please do consider rating, ranking, bestowing multiple stars and commenting on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.